0: So if you will, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, we're actually going to finish up chapter 7 today and actually finish up a, a, a major section of the book of 1 Corinthians. So actually this section began way back in chapter 5. Um, and Paul began dealing with issues surrounding uh, the church, but specifically there was, uh, the church was inactive in reprimanding or disciplining a sinning brother. In fact, as Paul begins, he says, I'm amazed there is this um, gross sexual immorality that is among you, and you're not doing anything about it. You, you need to take action. And then we saw, that the, the church, people in the church were suing one another and defaming publicly, um, uh, degrading people in, in public. And Paul's like going, these things need to stop. Is nobody smart enough? Is nobody wise enough to take care of these issues? So Paul has been dealing with, uh, uh, with these issues within the church. But probably one of the big issues that he's been dealing with is the issue of, Sexual ethics or sexual immorality, or, and contrasted with a biblical sense of of morality. And he's talked a lot about um, marriage and divorce and singleness and remarriage, those types of things. And and we saw Paul dealing with two two extremes. The first extreme we might call that kind of the the, the libertine or the the uh, um, the side of free grace, they are saying, look how spiritual I am. I can sin freely. And because of God's grace, I can live however I want. It doesn't matter. I've been saved. I am a follower of Christ, and so therefore, I can do whatever I want. After all, what I do in my body doesn't affect my spirit or my soul. And Paul basically um Tears that argument down. And we have people today who say, well, I, you know, I said a prayer when I was 10, so I can live however I want to live. Um, It doesn't really matter. And Paul has basically um, dismantled that attitude. But then Paul had to deal with the opposite extreme. The opposite extreme was uh, well, the first extreme was that. I can demonstrate how spiritual I am by how greatly I sin. I can sin greatly. See how spiritual I am? I'm forgiven. But the opposite extreme was equally troubling, and that is, no, 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 no. If you want to be spiritual, you need to deny all earthly pleasure. That's how you ascend the spiritual ladder. So, people were... Married couples were abstaining from sexual intimacy, saying, look how spiritual we are. Or they were divorcing their spouse, saying, look, we're single now. Look, because this, this, we have ascended that spiritual ladder and somehow we are um, now more holy than you. The problem in Corinth is that they are a divided church. They have, there is spiritual arrogance and spiritual pride and we saw that all the way back in chapter 1. We're gonna see it at least all the way through chapter 14. They get on a, a subject or a topic and they tend to rank themselves as in their spiritual walk. I'm more spiritual than you because I do such and such. Or I'm more spiritual than you because I don't do such and such. And, and and as a result, there is these schisms and there are these factions and Paul has been working to uh, demonstrate that neither of those things are true and that their problem is that they are arrogant and that they are proud. And as a result of that, they have split and they are um, uh, divided. And as a divided church, they are an ineffective church. So that's kind of where we've been. Where we're going to go today is to uh, pick up this theme that Paul began last week. Well, last week for us. You can go back and listen to that sermon or it's on sermon.net. You can find it on our website um, and it's on YouTube. And So anyways, you can check that out. But the main theme that Paul was dealing with last week was remain as you are. If you're married, remain married. Because remember, they were thinking, well, I'm married, and so, but to be spiritual, I need to deny myself of all earthly pleasure, so I'm going to separate from my wife or separate from my husband. And Paul's like going, no, that's not right. Or people were saying, well, since it's more spiritual to be single, I'm going to just remain single even though... I don't have that giftedness. I am not called to the single life. And so I am going to do this because I am going to impress my friends and neighbors with how spiritual I am. And Paul is saying, no. In the way that God called you, what were." Where were you when God called you? When you were converted, what condition, what state were you in? Remain as you are. Paul is now going to continue that theme. Only now he's going to continue the theme with those who are betrothed. Or maybe uh, uh, we might say those who are engaged. In other words, I've dealt with those who are married. I've dealt with those who are single. I'm dealing with those who are, I've dealt with those who are widowed. And now somebody says, well, yeah, but I don't fit in any of those categories. I'm engaged. What should I do? And Paul will give the same advice. Remain as you are. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, that's great, but that's not very relevant to me. I'm, I'm not engaged. I'm not planning on getting engaged. I think I'll just check out of this sermon. Well, I would encourage you to uh, engage. That was not a pun or a play on. I would encourage you to actively listen. First of all, this is God's Word. All right? And God has given us His Word for our benefit and for our good. Second of all, there are principles that will be applicable to all of us. And third of all, um, Paul is really going to focus, kind of one of the overarching themes that Paul is going to deal with is to encourage each of us to a life that maximizes one's interest in the kingdom. In other words, how do I orient my life so that, I, so that my priorities are given for Christ and not for the transitory and temporary things of this world? So, it will be maybe a challenge or hopefully an encouragement that we will reorient our lives towards the things of God. So if you will, let's go ahead and I'm going to read uh, our text today. It is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25 through 40. I would encourage you to read along with me or follow along with me as I read the inerrant word of God. Now concerning the betrothed. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better." A wife is bound to her husband as long as, she, as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married, to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet, in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. So Paul begins with remain as you are. Verses 25 through 28. This is a word to the unmarried. Basically, it is a word to the betrothed or to those who are engaged. More likely than not, it's dealing with uh, all of the pronouns here are feminine. It's probably focused on um, uh, women who are betrothed, um, though it certainly applies to both men and women. And And before we get into Paul's, views or God's Paul's inspired views on this let me maybe clear up a few questions that seem to uh, uh, make this passage of text somewhat difficult and the first one we we want to deal with and it's one we dealt with actually two weeks ago but it comes up again here so let's deal with it again that way if you weren't here um You get where we're going, and if you were here, it will reinforce what we said a couple of weeks ago. And it says, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So once again, we have this type of... This, this wording that people have often misconstrued and says, now you don't really need to pay attention to this because this is just Paul's opinion. This is not the divinely inspired word of God. This is just, it's like Paul is checked out from the Holy Spirit and now he's just giving us his own personal opinion. We dealt with this a few weeks ago. What Paul is saying is that I have no command from the Lord. In other words, God, Christ did not explicitly talk about this subject. And yet, Paul now is filling in those details as an apostle, and I spent a fair amount of time dealing with what an apostle is. An apostle is an, an individual, a person who has the, who carried the message of the king, and he had no right to alter that message. He was sent by the king, or he was sent by the emperor with a message, and he had no right whatsoever to add to the words of the emperor, nor to uh, take away from the words of the emperor. He was supposed to speak only those words. Paul is an apostle, not of the emperor, not of Caesar, but of the Lord of glory. And he is coming and he is speaking the very, as an apostle, he is speaking the very words of God. Just because Jesus did not explicitly address this situation does not, uh, after all, much of the Bible Jesus did not explicitly, we don't have the words of Jesus um, while he was on the earth on many topics. And you hear people today saying, well, Jesus never talked about. This, first of all, is just a false argument because all of the Bible is the words of Jesus. He wrote it spirit of god inspired it through human authors this is then somehow saying that the words of jesus are more inspired than say the words of moses god inspired moses to speak those words and paul is saying i am speaking forth the very words of god as an apostle jesus just didn't there is no explicit teaching like when he talked about divorce And that was the example that Paul was using that we spoke on a couple couple weeks ago. So Jesus did not explicitly speak on this matter, but Paul is the source of this instruction. And he says, as one who by God's mercy is trustworthy and has the spirit, it is to be followed. He says, so listen, I'm, I'm instructing you as an apostle who is... Um, has the authority to speak on behalf of the emperor of the universe. I am speaking these words. He affirms, he says, and it is by God's mercy and I, that I have been considered trustworthy to proclaim this message. And of course, at the very end of this uh, passage, he says, and I think I too have the spirit of God. So he is speaking by the spirit of God. Paul is basically being called as the expert witness, And he has been made sufficient to speak on this by the mercies of God. Paul alludes to this when he writes to Timothy. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor, persecutor um, and I acted ignorantly in unbelief but God has entrusted me with a message and he has considered me worthy to proclaim it that's what's going on here so Paul is simply saying Jesus did not speak about this explicitly but God has entrusted me considered me worthy by his own mercies and I am proclaiming to you that which he has spoken of through me so that's the first thing We want to deal with. And then the second issue that, um, we, we run across here is in verse 26 where he says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. So this present distress has, uh, caused quite a bit of, uh, difficulty for some people and, and I don't think it's that difficult. So um, I, I won't bore you with all of the gory details of how commentators and biblical stu- Bible students and biblical scholars have attempted to address this. I'm j- I think it's fairly simple, so I'll give you my simple explanation. In light of the present distress, remain as you are. Paul understands that we are living in the last days. I say this for, I think that the present distress has to do with Paul's understanding that we live in the last days. And the reason I say that is because of the immediate context and then perhaps a more distant context. But the first is, the immediate context is that over and over, twice, two more times in this passage of text, Paul is going to talk about the transitory nature of this world. This world is passing away. The time is short. This present distress is this idea of living in a time that is passing away. And then a more remote passage of text is just over, flip over a page. Well, at least in my Bible, it's a page. If you have a device, I don't know if it's a page. Scroll up or do whatever it is you need to do. Anyways, 10 11. Your notes say 10 31. Ignore that. Go to 10 11. Where Paul says this, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom The end of the ages has come. So Paul is writing that in light of this present distress, in light of the fact that we are living in the last days, these are the things I want you to do. Paul understands we're living in the last days. And given that the end of the ages has come, he is going to admonish, exhort, and encourage his listeners and us to adjust our lives to reflect that belief. Paul believes that these are the last days. And he's right. And so Paul has adjusted or reoriented his priorities in light of that truth. In light of the fact that Christ is coming again, my life is going to, my priorities are going to be reoriented. That's basically what Paul is talking about. And uh, Gordon Fee writes this, in his commentary, he says, in light of the troubles we're already experiencing, who needs a, the additional burden of marriage as well? So listen, we're living in these last times. Um, reorient your perspective and, and reorient your priorities to reflect that belief. So um, Paul is saying, listen, you should remain in the state that you are. Are you engaged? Are you betrothed? I'm saying remain in that state. That's what Paul would be saying. Because it will provide an opportunity for a more focused dedication to the cause of Christ. So in other words, stay as you are. Leon Morris says, when high seas are raging, it is not time to change ships. Paul is saying the seas are raging. Stay as you are. Don't add more complexity to your life. Live your life in a way that will allow you to focus on the permanent kingdom of God that has, that has now been inaugurated and will be consummated when Christ returns. Get, live your life in a way that maximizes your opportunity to serve Christ. That's where Paul's at. Stay as you are. Why? Because the seas are raging. Now's not the time to change ships. So, marriage, Paul says here, so he says, I... I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Basically, marriage is not a sin, but it will make life a bit more complicated. Despite the many advantages of marriage, there are additional stresses. And, and Paul is living in a day and age where Christians were persecuted. So some of the stresses, some of the, the burden, some of the anxiety that, that might come about is if, if the, the family is, is if there's a Christian family, and say the husband is out proclaiming the gospel and is arrested. And put in jail. Well, that's going to put... He's going to be very concerned about his family at home. Maybe I should maybe back off and not be so bold in my witness. Maybe I shouldn't be um, living for Christ as openly as, as, as I would like to because I need to take care of my family. Paul's not saying that's a bad thing. Paul's just saying that's an extra concern for somebody who is living in this present distress. John Bunyan would be a great example of this. John Bunyan, many of you know, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, um, a very fine book, one that if you have not read, you should. Uh, There are very few books that I will say you should read. Um, There are at least two. Um, The Bible. You kind of figured that, didn't you? And Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, Really worth, worth a read. Anyways, John Bunyan. A Utterly, completely poor man. He was a tinkerer. That is, he fixed pots. So if your stew pot sprung a leak, you would take it to Mr. Bunyan and he would fix it. But he was an amazing preacher. And people would come from miles around to hear him preach. Probably the most educated man in Western Europe at the time was a man by the name of John Knox. And John Knox loved John Bunyan. In fact, the king asked John Knox, like, why do you pay attention to that nobody? And Knox was like, oh, if only I could preach like that. But He was imprisoned for preaching. He didn't, see, he didn't have a license. He didn't have the right credentials to preach. and He was put in jail, and he was in jail a long time. And his, he was poor, and his wife struggled. He had a blind daughter. They struggled. It didn't hold back from Bunyan's preaching, but it does put an extra burden on somebody. And this is what Paul is saying. I, I just want to spare you that. We may be separated. We may A person may even be put to death in this situation. These are distractions. There are other family distractions, right? In-laws. Whose house are we going over to for the holidays this year? There are just numerous distractions that come up from being married. Being married is good. It is the biblical norm. God created it. It's good. Paul's just saying, listen, in light of the present distress, I would just ask you to uncomplicate your lives as much as possible so that you can live in a manner that is utterly and completely focused on the things of God. That's what he's saying. So marriage is not a sin, but it does make our lives a little bit more complicated, Paul then begins to uh, shift a little bit and he talks about marriage in light of eternity. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. So basically, the, the general idea here is re-evalu- reevaluate priorities in a world that is passing away. How do we reevaluate, well, Paul is exhorting the people, reevaluate your priorities in light of the fact that the world is passing away. In fact, he says so. The time has grown short. Now, the the, the general picture here is, um, I don't know, maybe you have like a bag or a, some sort of a, well, a bag and it has drawstrings and you pull it and it, the mouth gets tighter and tighter. That's the general idea. It, it is becoming... Um, the time is growing narrower and narrower. The strings are being drawn and the mouth is closing. That's the general idea of what Paul means by the time has grown short. Perhaps we could say the time is compressed or The time is tight and the opportunity for kingdom work now is at a premium. The issue here that Paul is dealing with, the issue is not how much time is left, like, well, what do you mean? How much time is left? Does Paul, is Paul saying the time is short? Do we have two weeks, three weeks, a month, a year? Paul's not dealing with that. Paul is not dealing with how much time is left, but how does Christ's death and resurrection alter how we view the time that is left? Does that make sense? Not What is the chronological amount of time before Christ returns? Paul's not interested. Paul is saying, Christ has died, Christ has risen again, the end times have been inaugurated, so now how do we maximize, how do we live our lives in the light of the fact that Christ is coming again? How do we alter, or how do we view the time that we have left? That's a great question for us. How do we redeem the time for the day is near? This is where Paul is going. He's not trying to make some prediction. He's just saying, listen, the kingdom has been inaugurated. The kingdom will be consummated at the return of Christ. So we have a certain amount of time. How do we prioritize our lives so that we maximize that time? If you are betrothed, Paul is saying, I think it's best that you remain single so that you can really give your attention and your focus to the things of the kingdom. That's where Paul is going. So, in other words, how does Christ's death and resurrection alter our values? What do we value? And then Paul gives five examples. I know in your your notes you probably only got four, but I didn't break them down the way they're supposed to be broken down. But... There are five. And the first one is marriage. The time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they have, have none. Now, we know that this is an example because Paul has, has a very high view of marriage. We've seen that in previous statements. Paul's now not saying, listen, live like your roommates or anything like that. He's simply saying marriage is... In light of the context, marriage is not a permanent institution. It will be broken by death. Um, But a relationship with Christ survives death. It goes on forever. So live in light of the fact that your relationship with Christ, as, as important and as godly as a marriage is, it is transitory. But your relationship with Christ is permanent. Live for the permanent. Paul's not contradicting what he has previously instructed, but a relationship with Christ is much more dear than even the closest marriage. And then weeping and rejoicing, he deals with this, and he's not saying don't weep and don't rejoice. Paul did both. I think I gave you some passages in, in your notes, so you don't need to, I'm not going to spend much time. Paul weeps, Paul rejoices. The tears of joy and tears of laughter are not the last word. We are not to be consumed with joy nor consumed with mourning. Those things do not dictate our lives. The coming kingdom is to dictate our lives. Buying and possessing. This was an exhortation against being consumed by consumption. We are not to necessarily to disengage from business. I'm going to step on some toes here. But shopping is not life. All that we have is on loan from God. He's not saying you can't go shopping. Some of it's necessary and some of it's just enjoyable sometimes. He's just saying, listen, these are transitory things. Don't be consumed by consuming. That's a great... It's probably great application for those of us in a very, very prosperous culture. Don't let consuming consume you. Remember, everything you have is on loan from God. Use that now, reorient your consumption so that even in your shopping, you are glorifying God. Buying or dealing with this world. Um, we continue to engage with this world, but we recognize that the things of this world are passing away. Our lives are not defined by the world. So Paul just gives these five examples, talking about the the, uh, importance of reorienting our lives in these shortened days, and not to be consumed with these transitory, passing things of the world. These things in the world are good, but they're not permanent. Christ and his kingdom are. Which one should our lives be focused towards? Paul, I think, would say focused towards Christ. So all these things are passing away. One should do all that is possible to focus on what is permanent. In other words, we ask ourselves the question, what is it that molds my life? What am I consumed with? What What occupies my thoughts? Since the world is not the source of a Christian's life or the ground of their hope, they should not allow it to cast them into the forge of its deadly furnace. Uh, Romans 12, two would probably be another thing that Paul says that would help us. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and excellent, what is the will of God. So don't be conformed by the world. Paul says that in Romans. That's basically what he's saying here focus on those things that are permanent. And then he he continues on in verse 32, I want you to be free from anxiety. So I don't want you to worry. No worries. Another reason Paul is advocating for the sing for people to remain single is because the unmarried can focus on pleasing the Lord. Married people are focused on pleasing a spouse. Paul, note note this, Paul does not criticize the married For being concerned about their spouses, he does not consider that a lesser form of Christianity. He's just recognizing it's real, it's true. He observes that marriage imposes certain obligations and responsibilities. I know people suggest that Paul is anti-marriage, and they use chapter seven to show, look, Paul hates marriage. He thinks singleness is best. Paul does not hate marriage. He's Remember, he's a good Jewish man. He understands Genesis 1 that God created them, male and female, in his image. He created them. And that what God has put together, let no man tear apart. Paul understands marriage, and Paul understands that it is God's good creation and God's good gift to his creation. He is just saying that when you are married, you will have certain obligations and responsibilities godly obligations and responsibilities and given that the time is short we should maximize our abilities to focus on the kingdom this is where he's going Paul is not anti-marriage when you hear that people say that they're wrong now Paul kind of gets to the crux of the issue and that is, how does one behave towards the person they're engaged with? But if anyone thinks, this is in verse 36, but if anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly but toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. So, in other words, listen, if you're engaged to be married and your passions are strong, get married. If In other words, marriage is not a sin. Sexual immorality is. If you gotta choose, get married. It's not a sin. Sexual immorality, that's a sin. If, if you can, if your passions are going to rule you, probably that's an indicator that you are not gifted with, with being a single person. Paul talked about that, what we might call a a gift of, of singleness, you probably don't have it. So don't fight it. Get married. It's not a sin. But acting on those inflamed passion is a sin. Now Paul gives two qualifications and the first one is, first the person needs to be established in his heart. So, um, But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. In other words, if this has been established in your heart, that is, you are not enslaved by the opinion, or not enslaved to the opinions of others. There is no compulsion. Remember what's going on in the Corinthian church. There are two extremes. One is the extreme of license, saying I can do whatever I want, and that is that proves how spiritual I am. But Paul is dealing with the other extreme, and that is that you should deny yourself all pleasure. So Paul is saying, listen. It's, if God has given you the ability to control your passions... Stay single. And you're doing it not because you're trying to ascend some spiritual hierarchy. Remember, one spiritual status is not enhanced by celibacy. So the first one is, are you established in your heart? Are you sure this is the right thing? Is this what God has called you to do? And and you're not being influenced by voices around you Say, man, you'd be a lot more spiritual if you didn't get married. Paul even says so. Paul doesn't say so. He's just simply saying, if you are able and you're not enslaved by the opinions of others, then remain as you are. Then he says there's no necessity. Um, that is, that's... The idea here that the necessity, the sexual impulses are not overwhelming you. If they are, get married to the one you're engaged to. So summary, marriage is good. Singleness, for those who is so gifted, is better. Why? Not because singleness advances one up a spiritual ladder, but because undivided service to Christ in these last days is preferred. Are you with me on that? You're finding these, it's a fine nuance here that Paul, I think, is treading that fine line really, really well. I hope I am. And then, finally, Paul deals with this issue in verses 39 and 40. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord, yet, in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. So, I have the Spirit of God. First of all, free, free to marry. Remarriage upon the death of a spouse is permitted. So, now, actually, in Scripture, we have three scenarios for remarriage. The first one, Jesus spoke very explicitly about, and that would be sexual immorality. Paul spoke about the second one, um, I don't know, we talked about it a few weeks ago, and that is desertion by an unbelieving spouse. Paul, because remember, in Corinth, it's a pagan culture, the gospel comes, perhaps one partner in the marriage becomes a Christian, but the other doesn't, and the one who doesn't says, you know, I just can't live with this crazy Christian in my house. I'm out of here. Paul says, you're free. And then the third scenario for separation and remarriage is death. So if your spouse dies, you are free to remarry. But notice the caveat, but only in the Lord. The Lord. That is, only another believer. So let me emphasize this. Only a believer. Christians are to marry Christians. Um, and not. And so we would really guard this. Make sure that the person that you are engaged to or hoping to be engaged to or looking to marry um, truly is a believer. Um, that they understand what the gospel is, what the truth is. Not just somebody who's spiritual or even somebody who just goes to church. Make sure they're a believer. Yeah, there are people who go to church and are not believers. Make sure that they have an orthodox understanding of the faith. So we would say things like they would hold to things like sola scriptura. That is, Scripture alone. That is, we only have one source of authority, and that is Scripture. That's it. If there is another source of authority, some other writing by some individual, we would say, that person's probably not a believer. I would, they may think they are. Salvation by grace through faith. Justification by faith alone through grace alone and the works on the merits of Christ alone. That would be it. That, that is a, a core and unique doctrine of the Christian faith, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by the works of Christ alone. We saw this week, um, so we, we are not saved by, we're not even saved by, the, if you took communion today, it won't save you didn't merit salvation for you it did not wash away your sins the death of christ washed away your sins baptism as important as it is will not save you does not wash away your sins i we saw an article a couple weeks ago maybe some of you saw it i talked to my my, uh, i spoke to my systematic theology class about this and we had some fun discussion but there was a a catholic priest who for decades has been baptizing people in the wrong for, with the wrong formula. The formula that he was baptizing infants was, we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's wrong. According to the, the statutes of the Catholic Church, it is I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptism is necessary. It's one of the seven sacraments and necessary for salvation. If you are not baptized, you are not saved. Decades of people unsaved, people who've died. That is not justification by faith alone, through grace alone, on the merits of Christ alone. Folks, Christ's death for your sins is sufficient. Utterly and completely sufficient. Fall on the mercies of Christ. We add nothing to it. Marry a believer. Make sure they understand. Make sure that you are all in agreement on these issues. There are others and we can go on, but I won't. Caveat, you're free to marry, but make sure it is another believer. And then Paul concludes with, I too. And then he says, yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. So if she remains single, I think she's going to be better off. That's what I think. And then he concludes with, I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Certainly this indicates that there are false teachers claiming Spirit-led teaching that is contrary to the, Paul, the Apostle. I, too, have the Spirit of God. That would seem to allude to the fact that there are other people saying, I have the Spirit of God, and I say exactly the opposite of what Paul says. In other words, given the context, there are those who uphold an ascetic view of spiritual maturity also, and also claim the leading of the Spirit. So, listen, Paul's not right. What you need to do is deprive yourself of all earthly pleasure if you want to be spiritual. If you want to be spiritual, pummel your body, deny it all of its pleasures, and that's how you become spiritual. There are false teachers saying that, and Paul has been refuting that, and he says, I too have the Spirit of the Lord. So I guess then the question is, who do I believe? These people who are claiming one thing, or the Apostle Paul? I think throughout the, the 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 totality of Paul's writing, Paul has established his apostolic authority. Remember, he is an apostle. What does an apostle do? He is is a recognized mouthpiece for the emperor. Paul claims that his instructions are spirit-led. Paul is an apostle who has seen the risen Christ. These other liars have not seen the risen Christ. I have. That is, a, that is a mark of an apostle. If you haven't seen the risen Christ, you are not an apostle. He has suffered for the Corinthians in order to bring the gospel to them. In fact, he uses that as his resume in 2 Corinthians. These guys all make these big claims. Let me give you my resume, and I can just see that he would just kind of lower his robe and show his back. And the marks and the beatings and the scars and the wounds here's my resume. My resume is, I have suffered greatly for the cause of Christ. He has performed the works of an apostle of an apostle. He has done miracles. Another one is he has been received by the apostolic community. In other words, Peter and John and the other apostles say, yep, Paul is an apostle like us. Paul's words carry weight. I, too, have the Spirit of God. I don't think he's saying, listen, now you have to make some sort of tough decision between us. Listen, I'm an apostle, and I can back it up. I have the Spirit of God. You should hear what I have to say. You should follow. I have to say. So as we conclude this large section of 1 Corinthians and as we conclude this particular passage of text, we should remind ourselves of some, some major themes. First of all, Paul talks about marriage and singleness. And we should remember that they are not measures of one's spiritual walk. A lot of times we like to say, well... I'm more spiritual than so-and-so because of I read the Bible more than they do or I read the Bible less than they do or I go to church more than they do or less than they do or something along those lines. Paul is saying people have put marriage and singleness on this um, scale of, uh, to rank our spiritual maturity. He takes that off the table. Don't even, that, that's just not even a consideration. But maybe for us... One of the things that Paul really hones in on is this idea of reorient, reorienting our priorities given the time. See, becoming a Christian changes how we understand our calling and vocations. I think I, I started last week with the, something along the lines, I don't remember what I said last week, I don't remember what I said yesterday, but something along the lines that uh, Christianity is a whole life calling. It it demands, it, it affects every aspect of our lives. So Becoming a Christian changes how we understand our callings and our vocations. So how do we reorient our lives so that we are given to maximize living for Christ? In other words... How do we reorient? What changes are we to make so that all we do is with a view to redeeming the time because that mouth of the sack is closing? Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ is coming again. We live. The kingdom has been consummated. We are living right now. These are the last days. The last days began. I'm going to just say at the ascension, of perhaps the resurrection of Christ, perhaps the ascension of Christ, but we can dispute those two things. And they will end when Christ comes again. These are not the last day because there's a war over in Eastern Europe. These are the last days because Christ has died, Christ has risen, and it will be consummated. These last days will be consummated when Christ comes again. He has called us now, redeem the time. The days are short, the days are evil. Live with me, Christ, as your priority. Father, we come before you this day. I pray that these words have been clear. I pray, Father God, that we are able to grasp them, that we are able to apply them, that we are able to live them out, Lord God, that we are better able to instruct others, that we are better able to encourage others, that we would encourage ourselves with these words, that we would strengthen ourselves in these words, With these words father that we would appreciate your word more and more we would remember that you have died for us and that we live because you live within us so be merciful to us this day strengthen and keep us in christ's name we pray amen let's stand and we will sing